If you're new here, you've caught us on week three of our Advent series, Fixing Christmas, and uh, the point of our time together was kind of just to address us, because whatever is wrong with the season, really, we invented it, so it's our problem, and first week we got together, we talked about broken relationships. Christmas is a time where if things aren't right with someone, it shows up sort of around the holidays, and we looked at God's answer called forgiveness, the forgiveness that we received, we give. Last week, we added to that discussion, um, talking about stress and anxiety that shows up this time of year, and we looked at God's answer to that too, and that is the gracious affections of God frees us from that kind of stress or performance or people-pleasing. And So today is, uh, is another topic, and it has to do with uh, greed and consumerism, okay? The, the, the shape of Christmas, you guys see the Charlie Brown Christmas special they had, the 50th anniversary? It, 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 the whole point, you could get the sermon just watching Charlie Brown Christmas. Not that I got it from Charlie Brown or anything, but <clears throat> very interesting. I haven't watched that in 40 years, but I watched it the other day, and Linus reads the gospel account of Jesus coming as a Savior, which is pretty impressive that they're willing to even show it on TV now. But nevertheless, Charlie's struggling with this version of Christmas, lights and flash and commercialism stuff. And so it was the reminder of, of why Jesus came that addressed that issue. And I suppose I don't have to do much teasing to tell you that the, our season, this season, has kind of been taken hostage like that. In, in a small book called Advent Conspiracy, the writers of that book presented the problem like this, and, and maybe this helps us. It, it says this, the fastest growing religion in the world is not Islam or Christianity. The symbol of this rising faith is not the star and crescent or the cross, but it's a dollar sign. This expanded belief system is a radical consumerism. Many American Christians have decided they can, to put it bluntly, love both God and money. The scriptures tell us how God's people have often, were often intrigued by the promises of other gods. They did not denounce him as, as they began to worship Baal or any other god. Rather, they often continued to profess loyalty to God while they pursued their functional god. American Christians have incorporated their devotion to consumerism with the Christian faith. It is now clear that the primary threat to Christianity in America is, is consumerism, not liberalism, fundamentalism, Darwinism, secularism, or any otherism for that matter. Money. I don't know if you agree with that. It's at least a point to consider. But if you're not careful, you're going to be just in the same kind of routine as you've always been. Christmas will be just like it's always been for you, right? Spending money that you haven't earned on things you can't afford with the illusion of joy that it can't provide. That's kind of what this whole thing is about, right? And um, I don't know if you noticed, but it was just at Halloween this year they started putting the Christmas ads on television. And now we have Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Tuesday and Business Saturday, and eventually they'll just suck up the whole month and say bye, okay, um, if they haven't already. Well, the thrust of this other religion, if you buy that kind of verbiage, in this holiday is that joy is realized in stuff, things, or money, or possessions, or whatever you might call it. Happiness is achieved that way. <clears throat> and, and our world knows that, right? So credit card companies so far this year have spent $150 million just advertising your need to use their card to get in debt to buy those things, okay? And it works. From what they say, 40% of us in this room, four out of every 10, We'll finance Christmas, and we'll be paying for it next year with interest rates because we won't pay it off this year. 
it, I, I don't know if this is fair. I'm not certain I understand the amount of giving units in our church. There's about 3,500 people plus or minus that go here. I would imagine there's probably 1,100 to 1,200 giving units. This Christmas, we'll probably spend over a, well over a million dollars just to buy presents. That's pretty incredible. <clears throat> and there's a reason why we do it. Because rooted in that mindset, not like you have to actually consciously think this through, but root, rooted in what it offers is the idea that something like that will satisfy or, or something like that will bring some version of happiness, at least a better happiness than the one I have already, okay? In fact, there's a lot of surveys that are taken based on uh, people's angst in life, and it's said kind of universally that, that most Americans suggest that if they had 20% more income, they would be happy. Everybody has said that. And uh, it's been studied a long time ago that that's just not true. That once your needs are met, your basic needs like food and shelter and employment, stuff doesn't fix anything else. There is nothing else that equals happiness, okay? Those of you who are familiar with scriptures, you know this to be true. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, spoke of these things when he talked about the perpetual pursuit of stuff. And he said, it's like chasing after the wind. Try to grab that, if you will. And this is what he said specifically about this issue of more. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This too is vanity. We've learned this, right? If we're honest with ourselves, there's not a man, woman, or child in this room that at some point, someplace in your life hasn't thought this, even subconsciously, that maybe, maybe that's what I need, just, just a little bit more. It's in me. It's in, it's in all of us. It has been at times. And that is the broken thing this Christmas that we want to address. This tragic mistake we make thinking that things or possessions or money will make it better. And the high holy day for that kind of mindset happens to be Christmas. It's kind of perpetuated as the time of the year to justify everything like that. And so this is how Jesus stated our reality. For where your treasure is, this is Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They go hand in hand. Wherever your heart is, you're going to go and spend, okay? So here's a couple of questions we could start out with. Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? I think those are fair questions. And if, if we're to have any hope in dealing with this perpetual angst in us for things, then we've got to see the gospel's answer to it. Just like last week, we saw the gospel's answer to stress and anxiety. And the week before that, saw God's gospel answer to broken relationships. It's the same answer we have today. And if we're going to have Christmas be different, shaped different, then we're going to have to see our hearts formed by the giving nature of God. Have to get there and understand exactly why he came and what he's doing and producing in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what this sermon is about, okay? So some of you were here back when we were doing our Romans uh, study together. I think we spent 18 months studying the epistle to the Romans and Paul uh, spent 11 really great chapters in the beginning of Romans talking about man's problem and God's provision, that God's love and God's salvation, his mercy, his grace shows up to people who don't seek it and don't deserve it and he gives it graciously and freely to people and it transforms them and he starts in chapter 12 and he says this radical thing, he said, because of the gracious mercies of God, he tells the church, then present yourselves or give yourselves as a what? Living Sacrifice. Sacrifices, I don't know if you think about this much, but sacrifices as a Hebrew mind would have seen it or understood that phrase, would have understood it this way. Well, that's all in. 
Like sacrifices aren't marginal. You know, like I'll give a little bit. Once you're a sacrifice, you're done, right? You're completely invested. A living sacrifice is what Paul says is response to the gospel. So once we get what God has given by grace to us, by faith in Christ, then what happens to our, respect, our reflection is that we, we uh, sacrifice, we give of ourselves, including, including our possessions and our money. And this is where it kind of rubs against the American mindset a little bit because everybody else in the world goes, of course. I mean, Jesus talks about money and finances more than he talks about heaven and hell. So this is serious business, and I think it's because he knows that the human heart's connected its treasure to its stuff. And so he brings a gospel thought to it. It was said some eight, 900 years ago when the crusaders were being baptized that they would be baptized with their swords held out of the water, kind of suggesting like, well, you, you can have my soul and I can have heaven, but you're not getting my violence, you're not getting my vengeance, you're not getting my you know, what I'm about. And it is also said that most Americans are baptized with their wallets hanging out of the water. I'm glad for heaven. I, I want Jesus. I'm thankful for transformation, but mm, getting a little too close to home when we're talking about my stuff. And I don't know if that's true, but I think it helps us at least wrestle with the potentials in us. So I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to do it after I read to you, or we'll read together, a couple of texts. Uh, one will be a story, a true story. One will be a parable that Jesus shares. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. And if you want to put your finger in Matthew 13, that'll be where we go next. <clears throat> so it'll be Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. You're very familiar with this. This is the rich young ruler, Okay. This is the true story, starting in verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now skip to chapter 13, verse 44. This is the parable, a parable in a verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. So here's the question. Why was one willing to give everything and the other wasn't? I think the answer is fairly obvious because one understood the value of the treasure. To the rich young ruler, Jesus said, you want eternal life? Well, then just be, just give it all. Just give it buy-in. Be a living sacrifice. And he, he walked away sad. Man, the, that's not worth it. The treasure's not worth it to me. But in the parable, this man finds the treasure that he thought was worth everything, and he sold out. He was, in essence, a living sacrifice for that treasure. So here's another question. How great is the treasure of Christ to you? How great is it 
good enough to show up on Sundays? Is it, is it good enough for you just to have some sense of peace when you lay down at night because you know that eventually you're going to spend time in heaven and you'll get some more, you'll be melt, more self-indulged at that point? Like, is he worth a living sacrifice to you? Is he worth everything to you? Is the treasure of knowing Christ worth it all? And maybe you're here and you go, yeah, he's everything to me. Then another question is, how is it demonstrated in your life and your living? How does it show itself? Because this kind of devotion and this kind of sacrifice is visible. You can see it, right? This kind of giving it all away for the sake of Christ is obvious. Probably at a time of year like this that presents a version of happiness apart from the gospel and maybe it would show up in how we treat our Christmas. Who knows? So here's what I want to do today. I want to spend some time using an illustration of a church who understood what it is to get the treasure of Christ. And their response to it was ridiculous. Like, uh, it, it's going to leave us all very convicted. This, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth about the churches in Macedonia and how they responded to the gracious affections of God. And I just want to warn you ahead of time, okay? You are not going to be safe. When we're done reading this story, every one of us is going to go, ah, I'm not that. And I just want you to know this is the word of God and so we can handle it. The journey the Spirit's taken us through is, is worth going there. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a story, a true story about a real church. And it explains <clears throat> all that they do in their actions. Paul is, uh, just a little background, he's out collecting money for the church in Corinth and um, for the relief of the saints, according to the text. And he brings up the churches in Macedonia as an example of, of giving, okay? Of generosity. So let's read the first five verses. And I'm just going to point out some things that stick out to me, at least from this text. And then we'll make some applications at the end. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, even to, to us. Let me just point out some things that I think are important for us to get in this text. I want you to notice, first of all, what's going on here is a, is a complete 100% work of God's grace. Remember we talked about last week, the solutions to stress and anxiety? What was it? The gracious affections of God, right? Well, watch what God's grace does to our generosity. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, church in Corinth, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Everything like this is a gracious act of God. Every transformative work, every time a person doesn't act selfish and hoards, every time a person is radical in their giving, this is a work of God's grace. Every time anything good happens, it is the work of God's grace. Amen? Anything good in a church, like some, and I, I, don't, I don't go to churches. I'm part of this church. I don't go anywhere. I have a day off, I come here to church, okay? That's what I do. But I've heard stories about how clever programs can be 
and how intentional or lack thereof people are in, in what they do. And all I'm telling you is this. We've got programs, but I don't care. I mean, I, I do and I don't. Here's what I mean by that. I understand that everything good that God is giving us by his grace, in spite of us. Uh, we, we baptized 50 people a month and a half ago. That is not a work of a program. It's not the cleverness of leaders. It is Jesus, right? Every time you see anything good, it is the demonstration of God's grace to us, right? And it's clearly what happened for the churches of Macedonia, and it was their radical response to that grace received. I want you also to notice um, the conditions in that church when God's grace showed up. Look at verse 2. In, for in a severe test of affliction, some texts would translate it in a huge crushing test is kind of the idea of what's going on here. That means where God's extra measure, his grace shows up, where people are getting saved, where people are being changed into radical lovers of God, it's in the context of huge difficulty. Not in, not in having all their needs met, not in riches, but in, in this huge crushing test. Their greatest joy was, wasn't connected to possessions. Look at the third thing, verse 2, seems to point out to us. It says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. Look what comes along with God's grace, joy. Joy not connected to circumstances, having or not having. This joy is related to the gospel. This joy is related to the mercies of God. This is joy is from Jesus. Clearest signs that we're a believer is this joy that's not conditional, right? It is the joy that James talks about in trials. He says, consider it pure joy. How do I do that? When you encounter trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. How? How is it possible that someone can go through a trial and have pure joy? Because it's a grace joy. It's not circumstantial. It's not connected to having or not having or sickness or not being sick. It has everything to do with knowing Christ and living in Christ and being transformed by Christ. It's what Peter said. Our faith in Christ produces, as he calls it, an inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, in other words, this is a joy you can't explain. When people look at your life and they see like things falling apart and need and everything else, and yet they can't wipe the joy out of your life, that's a gospel joy. That's a Jesus joy. That's the kind of joy that the Macedonian church had. It was the secret to their generosity, all right? It's unconditional because it's anchored not in circumstances, not in having, but in Christ. Okay, I want you to notice the fourth thing here in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. The better way to translate that phrase is down to the depths poor. This is a kind of poor that almost every American citizen has no idea about. Poverty. Nothing. Okay, it's really hard to translate for us because in a context horizontally here, there are many of you who have way less than some of you, but you're still not poor as the Macedonian church was poor. But it was God's grace in that moment. I want you to notice it didn't remove their poverty and yet they still had joy and they still gave. 
It didn't make them insecure. Their poverty didn't make them hoard. It didn't make them fearful. It didn't make them tight-fisted or ring Their poverty didn't scare them. The poverty was the platform for extreme generosity. Amazing. Just amazing to me. So here's the fifth thing. Verse 2. So in their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in a, what's it say? Wealth of generosity on their part. A wealth of generosity. You could just write down ridiculous giving. Stupid giving. Makes no sense kind of giving. Radical giving. Uh, those, there are people who survey how we respond to money and possessions and they say on the average that the richer people are, the smaller percentage of their money do they give. In fact, what most, mostly happens is that once we grow our income, we raise our lifestyles. That's what Americans do. Okay? So here's the truth of that stat, because I think it's true. Having money and being rich compared to every other place on the planet does not make us generous. It just doesn't do that. And generosity has nothing to do with money. Because clearly the Macedonian church, if money was necessary to be generous, they couldn't play, could they? But they were extremely poor. And they're pointed out in Scripture as the preeminent example of what it is to be a giver. And they were extremely poor. Generosity, this kind of generosity, comes to the heart of a sinner who recognizes what Christ has done for us. That's what happens this is the kind of giving where a person who has very little, who is so unbelievably blown away at God's grace, doesn't even consider holding or protecting or guarding. He just gives. He just meets needs. Look at verse 3. Look what else we see in this text. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means. <laughs> in other words, they gave beyond what they could give. I, that's just hard to define there. That's ridiculous. Beyond what they could give, they took risks. Most of us would never take those kinds of risks. But the church that Paul points out as an example to the church in Corinth of how to give and how to follow the lead would be say they just were risky givers, all right? Verse 3 tells us that they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own free will. It was their choice. They weren't forced. They weren't coerced. They weren't buying into something. They were just responding to the grace of God. It tells us in chapter 9, Paul talks about the heart of God, what he looks for, and it says he loves a willing, cheerful giver. And that's what this church was. Totally into it. Nobody had to tell them to do it. Here's the eighth thing I want you to notice. It says here in verse uh, 4, begging us earnestly for the favor <laughs> on taking part in the relief of the saints. Wait, you're more poor than the people you want to help. And you're begging. The idea of begging there almost presents this tension where Paul would be recommending that they don't go that radical. Like maybe you should concern yourself about other things. Maybe you should sit this one out because obviously you have more than they do. And they were begging Paul, don't stop us from giving crazy because Jesus saved us. That was their response. Pretty, pretty convicting, right? So God's grace overflowed. It says in verse 5, they gave themselves to God and to others. In other words, this is, just, this is not just a feeling. This is tangible. 
this kind of understanding and belief in the grace of God made, they, made them a different people. They actually loved others. This was not just terms to them. This was not just some doctrine they held on to. This was a life-affecting conviction. I am saved by the grace of God. I cannot contain myself kind of love. I can't. I don't have anything, but I'm going to give what I have. I have a thousand reasons why I shouldn't, but it doesn't matter. This is the kind of transformative work the Holy Spirit does to believers, okay? To sinners who've been saved by grace. I told you, I warned you, this church is very convicting. And I suppose maybe more so to Americans who read this, and we have so much. You you know your garbage piles will be full of the plastic you buy for Christmas, right? In just a short period of time. We throw away things they could never afford, This is their unbelievable story, a crazy demonstration of generosity. And you know what caused it, don't you? Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's why this church, or these churches in Macedonia, reacted in ridiculous ways is because these people knew where they came from and they also know where Jesus came from and their minds could not contain their joy. He who is rich, the author and sustainer of all things, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who holds us together by the word of his power, this Jesus, the Jesus who made all things and knows all things, this Jesus left heaven. He was rich. In fact, Haggai tells us the silver's his, the gold's his, everything's his. There's no confusion on what he has. He has everything. And this Jesus made a decision to be poor for us. John MacArthur wrote this paragraph, listen, about the poverty of Christ. He owned everything, but when he came to this world, he he borrowed everything. He had to borrow a place to be born. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. He had to borrow a boat to cross the little Sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being triumphant and welcomed as king of kings and lord of lords. He had to borrow a room for the Passover because he didn't even have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. The only person who had the right to everything wound up with nothing became a servant. He came into the world as king of kings and lord of lords, rightful heir to David's throne as well as God in human flesh, but he had no advantages He had no privileges in this world. He came as a servant. He who is rich became poor so that we who are poor, spiritually bankrupt poor, not one good thing in us to offer God to get ourselves out of our problem, to deal with our sin, nothing. We have nothing to offer him. We are blind and dead, as the text says. And not only that, we're an active dead. It says we're at enmity. We're at war with God. So we're in a position of having no interest in him whatsoever, thinking it's all about us and trying to stiff arm the Almighty in the process. That's our poverty. He who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. What's the riches we get in Christ? What is the riches we get in Christ? We have our sins forgiven. Amen. We have our sins forgiven clearly. Text tells us we were set free. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. He adopts us as sons and daughters. Paul tells us that there is no condemnation, not one single thing that you've ever done in sin against God that will ever be brought up against you in, in charges. It's all been covered in the, in the finished work of Christ. And what we get is blessings, joy, and mercy, and grace. What we get is God. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. Now, do I have to explain why the Macedonian church couldn't help themselves in their generosity? If you really get where he found you and you really understand who he is, something happens. Church, I'm telling you, there's a transformative work and we're just not Christians added to Americans we become a new creature in Christ, and it's different now. And at least you would think, at least we could pray for the radical way in which this church gave. Okay? You know the famous, most famous text of all, for God so loved the world that what? He gave. We, as, as his people, now reflect his character. He is by nature a giver. That's what he does. That's what the gospel is. We take on that generous heart. That's what it means for us to reflect it back to him. And so therefore, there's some so what's to that gospel in us. It frees us from fear, which most people define why or what they don't do with money based on fear. What if? What if? And they create a scenario or a series of them of why they can't contribute in radical ways because of fear. Or maybe it's control. They don't want to give up control. They don't trust how God works with things like this. Maybe there's just a really deep-rooted selfishness or unbelief. Maybe there's worry, although Jesus addressed that too. Don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Look at the flowers of the field. Look at the birds of the sky. Don't, doesn't the Father take care of them? What are you thinking if you're a believer? This kind of gospel frees us from being absolutely convinced that if I don't make a way for myself, it won't happen. Christians don't fight for provision they have a Father in heaven who loves them. Now, we work. We work to the glory of God. We work, we invent, we create, we go for it. We really do in the freedom of the gospel. Right? But we don't have to make sure it all works out for our benefit because we have a Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, we should be done at this point. But I've had too many conversations with too many people that even after a very intimidating, convicting look at a church like the Macedonian church, there's still people would sit in a pew and say, why, why, why again are we supposed to give? So let me tell you why. Here's, here's one. God commands it. How's that feel? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. I skipped this on purpose, but go back to it. Verse 7. But as you excel, now this is Paul instructing the Corinthian church using the Macedonian giving as an example. He said, but as you excel in everything, okay, in faith, that's good, right, church? Faith is good. In your right speech, he says, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love. Okay, no one has a problem with Paul telling the church, excel, excel in those things. Now watch what he says. See that you excel in this act of grace also. And the act he's talking about is this radical generosity. Okay? The better way to read this is see to it that you excel in this kind of act of grace as well. Church, because of God's gospel, we give. That's the command. 
Let me give you another reason why to give. God promises to bless it. Very consistent throughout Scripture how God responds to people who love him more than stuff, okay? In Malachi chapter 3, there is a section there where God accuses Israel of robbing him. He just comes out and says it. You're stealing from me. And they say, how are we stealing from you? Because you're not giving tithes and offerings. And, and then God says very clearly, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Try me out. See if I don't open up heaven and bless you. Now, I'm not suggesting that the promises God had for Israel and Malachi apply to the church in, in, in the New Testament times, but, but I'm suggesting that his response to faith has always been consistent. Uh, let, let me prove it to you. 2 Corinthians 9, just flip over one page. This is again Paul instructing the church in Corinth, specifically talking about a cheerful giver, okay? And this is what he says, and see if you kind of catch on to these blessings that he offers to this cheerful giver. Verse 7, chapter 9. Each one must give as he decided his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now skip down to verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be, what's it say? Enriched in every way. You'll be enriched in every way. There's a promise, there's a blessing. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce a thanksgiving to God, another blessing. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Blessing. By their approval of this service, they will, what's it say? Glorify God. Now, there is no promise that the version of blessing that many perpetrate in the, and I use this term loosely, church world, suggests to you, if you give, God's going to fill your pockets. I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying God will bless you. And blessing has more to do with your heart and your affections than it has to do with money. And, and just so you know, he may or may not, I don't know. But I do know this. He promises to encourage and fan your faith and fan your trust in him. And what will come out of it is you will be enriched in every way and he will be glorified in every way. Anybody got a problem with that? That's worth it. Amen? That's worth it. I already kind of teased this up a little bit before, so if you want an answer to why give, then it's just know this, Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. In other words, your heart gets into what you give to. So, if your heart has wandered anywhere in kingdom business, if you're cynical and hard, if you've been hurt and you've decided to say that men's sins are bigger than what God commands and you've just checked out, then I can tell you that you're probably, my guess is you're probably not in the process of generosity. I'm just telling you that an obedient response to the grace of God by being generous to his work and his kingdom means that your heart will be transformed and you will fall in love with the things that you give to. I promise you. Because your heart follows your dough. Does this make sense? If I opened up your garage, we'd know. You come to my house, there's this old rusty scout sitting there. And you could say, Tim loves a scout. And I, I do. Every one of us have those issues. And, of course, the point we've, making, we've made this whole morning is that it reflects the generous nature of God. That's why we do it. So 
maybe you're here now and maybe the Holy Spirit has kicked up some conviction and you're one of those who if someone said, let me see your giving records and you go, I'd, uh, please don't look. I don't want anybody to see because I don't. Then you're asking a question, what should I give? Let me give you some thoughts concerning this. Here's the first rule, I think. Give enough that it matters. Give enough that it matters. In other words, it should make a difference in your lives and your lifestyles. We are to give enough that there are things that we cannot do and we cannot have because we are giving towards the work of God. That's the reality of giving. In fact, it is implied, not implied, but stated explicitly in Scripture that those who give much without sacrifice are reckoned as giving very little. Isn't that true? Okay, so you wrap your head around that. God knows, and so we need to give enough that matters. You know, there are some who would say, suggest to you that tithing is what the church should do. I don't personally believe that. I don't think the scriptures teach the New Testament church anything about the law of tithing. But the scriptures do in the New Testament say when the Holy Spirit arrives in the heart, then whatever you thought just goes through the roof. Jesus said, you've heard it said, I tell you. And he raised the bar everywhere he went. Um, Randy Alcorn said this specifically about those who struggle with the law of tithing. This is convicting, so I'll read it to you. I've heard Christians argue often angrily that tithing is legalism. However, the average American Christian gives 2.5%. Even using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Christ. When we as New Testament believers living in a far more affluent society than ancient Israel give only a fraction of what of that given by the poorest Old Testament believers, we surely must reevaluate our concept of grace giving. And when you consider that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, and they didn't, the contrast becomes even more glaring. Convicting, right? So, we're, we are done, but let me just say this to you. Uh, if you want some encouragement, I want you to remember that you, when you give, you're, you're not giving to, let's say you choose to give here, you're not giving to redemption. You're giving to God. The work of God that goes around the world is amazing to me. We just presented Ethiopia to you, but we don't talk enough about it, and I suppose that's another failure on our part. But I asked Neil to give me just a sense of how much others' money goes around and, and affects the world. Um, Gilbert is at, at a pace right now of about 11 to 12% of our of our um, giving goes to others. Um, we support Surge, which is a leadership training uh, Mechanism. I think there's 100 plus churches that are involved in training up leaders. Um, we have the Missional Training Center, which is the equivalent of our seminary that we're supporting. We have, um, we're involved in China, Ethiopia, Alaska, Morocco, Turkey, prison ministries, foster care and uh, adoption initiatives, and benevolence, and on and on it goes. So um, I think our budget this year is $4.1 million, and I think it's 4.2 something, 4.3 that we've given outside of ourselves. So you should just know this. I think it's important because we don't say it, that every dollar that you give meets other people's needs. Just know that. I also want to leave you with this, and I want it to stick. This kind of generosity is a spiritual decision. It's not a financial one. So if you go out of here thinking that you've got to start counting pennies, that's not what I'm saying. I want you to look in the spiritual mirror of God's word and ask yourself a question. It's a spiritual decision because God is not looking for donations. He's looking for hearts. Amen? Okay? So if you're not in the game, I just encourage you to get in the game. Make a decision. Make any decision. 
move forward and, and keep going. That is a believer's gracious response to the love of God on our behalf. Would you agree? Amen. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for Jesus. He is the champion of our lives. He is the point of every story. And Lord, we want to give him everything, including our wallets. God, I pray that you'd make us a generous people. I pray that we would look more every day like Jesus, our Savior. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit we pray this. Amen.